thank all of you for joining us for the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus by Deleuze and Guattari. Uh, slowly making our way through uh, chapter three, we're now on to section seven, the barbarian or imperial representation. This is going to be a fun read. We're already expecting that we're only going to get just about halfway. We're hoping maybe a little bit beyond halfway. But uh, with any luck, we'll have a handful of people who are here who are up for taking on a little bit more of the reading. So that way I can take uh, occasional breaks uh, and hopefully some other people who have a better understanding of some of the stuff they reference here. Uh, starting off the chat with a little bit of house. Oh, sorry. Go ahead and Kip. Roger. Kent, who was that? Well, someone. Uh a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, we are uh, trying to figure out what we're going to be doing with the server. We're moving some talks around. We're trying to figure out how we can get a little bit more activity, 1,600 people in a limited chat. So we're going to try to figure out what we can do to sort of boost that. If you have any ideas, don't hesitate to hit us up in the suggestions area. If you want to volunteer, become a mod, run a chat, uh, you want to talk through a book or have a conversation, you're always welcome inside of us and uh, drop a note in the volunteer chat. Uh, we have a bunch of talks again this week. Uh, Kent, do you want to run through what's going on on uh, the Continental Philosophy server and with your other talks? Yeah, we have um, the... Uh, uh, on, on Friday, we're going to have... Um, a discussion of uh, the origin of the work of art uh, by Heidegger, and so and so that should be interesting. And then uh, we're going to start on September second, uh, Zizek, Sex and the Failed Absolute. So uh, that should be an interesting read. Probably my favorite Zizek text recently. Uh, maybe one of his best. So it's, uh, I'm probably going to be, I'm excited. Um, and uh, Alibaba comes today. Uh, how about uh, literature, anything this week? Alibaba does indeed come today. And on Saturday is coming, unless things change uh, and appropriately, uh, Oedipus Rets by Sophocles. So join us for a reading of Oedipus Rets on Saturday at noon PDT. And likewise, on Sunday, Simondang, they will continue with uh, their session at 11 a.m. PDT. All right. And uh, please join all of those chats if you'd uh, like to. And if you have more, you'd want to join. Uh, the last thing is right now, this may be our last of these that we're doing on a noon on a Monday. This week, we're going to be setting up our new time frame. We're probably moving, shockingly, a whole hour earlier, maybe two. Uh, we're trying to debate between those. and We'll be passing out a poll this week. So uh, with that, uh, I'm going to go ahead and dive into our text today. Uh, Barbarian or Imperial Representation. Uh, for those of you who are watching on YouTube, I have the text up so you can read along with us and also on the left side of the screen is uh, the chat so you'll get to see all the wonderful things that are said only in text uh, be ready for way too much fucking meme uh, as always anyone feel free to jump in as we get into the conversation the more of you the better so we start with uh, immediately right to incest with the sister we really need to do that schizoanalysis of Pornhub, by the way, because all of this just feels like there's something going. 
Incest with the sister and incest with the mother are very different things. The sister is not a substitute for the mother. The one belongs to the connective category of alliance, the other to the disjunctive category of filiation. Incest with the sister is prohibited insofar as the conditions of territorial coding require that alliance not be confounded with filiation, and incest with the mother, insofar as descent within filiation, must not be allowed to interfere with ascending lines. That is why the despot's incest is twofold, by virtue of the new alliance and direct filiation. He begins by marrying the sister, but he enters into this direct but he enters into this forbidden endogamous, endogamous marriage outside the tribe inasmuch as he is himself outside his tribe, on the outside or at the outer limits of the territory. This is what Pierre Gordon showed in his strange book. The same rule that proscribes incest must prescribe it for certain persons. Exogamy must result in the position of men outside the tribe who for their part are entitled to an endogamous marriage and are able, by virtue of this formidable right, to serve as initiators to exogamous subjects of both sexes, the sacred deflower or the ritual initiator on the mountain or across the waters. The wilderness, land of betrothal. All the flows converge on a man such as this. All the alliances find themselves countersected by this new alliance that overcodes them. Endogamous marriage outside the tribe places the hero in a position to overcode all the endogamous marriages into the tribe. I'm just going to confirm it is pronounced endogamous. Seems stupid. I looked it up. It says endogamous. Read something else. Terrible word. Um, I, in French, it's uh, endogyne, which would be endogenous. Yeah, but everything sounds better in French. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> such an awkward anglicized word um so this uh this opens in such a very fun way where we immediately dive right into what i actually found to be one of the more difficult parts of this entire uh chapter and of course everything's trying to relate back to oedipus but it's how incest directly relates to uh the the position of the despot Uh, of course we saw in savage times uh the prohibition against incest was not uh, some psychological thing, but instead was done in order to maintain the ability for a sister to be married off to another family, so that way you could maintain alliances, and for you not to fuck your mom, so that way uh, your past, your affiliation, your descent uh, backwards could continue to have the mythology trace, so you could find your place within things. That was my understanding of incest at that point. Uh, uh, please, uh, Eliosha, what are you saying? Establish how this isn't a historical. Please go into that for a moment. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I'm qualified. That's that's really. Uh, I find myself. I know we got dude. Into no one here. Stuff. No one here is qualified. <laughs> like like <laughs> it's talk about the the repressed representative and di- displaced representative and all that. I mean, there's a vague. I have a vague sort of recollection of that. But at this beginning portion, I. I this almost reminds me of Derrida's thing about the example where like an example is never just an example, you know, so they, they throw out these examples, but I'm like, I, I just want to, I'm okay. We just read Nietzsche in the literature group and there's all kinds of historical mistakes in that. And it's, you can still get something out of it. So I'm not trying to drag it down. I'm just trying to understand, are they basing this all on the, like these handful of examples? Of so specific let's, tribes? let's take, let's take a vote. Let's take a vote. Uh, uh, we still have Polbot working inside of the chat, right, Jack? Uh, poll uh, is simple this poll bot. allegory 
Uh, thumbs up if it's allegory, thumbs down if you think this is real. Uh, or, or stupid, like, I don't know. I mean, come on, click it, it's in the chat. Uh, so... I mean, they bring up that specific tribe as their example. That's why I just want to understand it. Are they just extrapolating from that one situation or what are they trying to say? I, I, so I don't read it as I, I read it as both. I read it as that they are actually being allegorical, like in general, because they're trying to relate things back to Oedipus. And they're trying to have this conversation of how our relations to our family are not necessarily something that is birthed in us from the primordial ooze that we aren't born with Oedipus thousands of years ago, that our relationship to our sisters and mothers change over time. And that this is sort of one of those things that uh, is how we can track coding or overcoding of desire flows. However, they really get into some fucking specific examples inside of this section uh, that make me think that it can't just be allegorical. Uh, for example, the concept of the sacred deflower, the ritual initiator I, I mentioned to uh Jack earlier, all of this uh, prima nocta, the, the idea that a king can uh, gets the wife on the, the her first uh, night of marriage. Um, they were on page 200 of, uh, well, I don't know, my edition. Uh, uh, but the, the idea is that uh, there's kind of both. It, there's, there's only, there is some reality in this. The despots did take women as their own they absolutely we know that they married their sisters like for a long time there's some hilarious awful stories of incest and inbreeding amongst major royal rich families so it's not some crazy out of nowhere thing uh but i mean it feels like it dances between allegory and reality too much for me to not to just say it's both We get in this into this question every week, and um, <laughs> I don't think we've really progressed here because we what we are trying to figure out is how that concept of genealogy works, and we haven't really progressed in that regard. No, and I think my my. I've had a, a handful of conversations, and after reading through Holland and a few others, I think we will not sort of have a closure to the, their genealogy and our understanding of it until well into their introduction to schizoanalysis. And I think that's when they start closing in and becoming a lot more clinical in response. But I think they play into a place that is, um, you know, the term fuzzy logic comes to mind, where it's, is it true? Yeah, 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 sure. Like, yeah. Like that feels, is that close? Like, does that make sense? Or am I sounding like an, a fool? I mean, it's pretty clear that they don't write a history book here, right? Like they, I, I would guess that they know how a history book looks like. And this is not how a history book looks like. <laughs> Well, we, we can continue. I think what I'm trying to say is that it's not that I think they're writing history, but it's sort of like, you know, there were certain claims that Nietzsche made in The Birth of Tragedy, for example, that are really contingent on a particular understanding of like, Dionysius is a foreign god that came to Greece. And then, you know, that's just not what, that's really not the consensus anymore. So I don't mean to drag it down in that sense. I'm just saying, like, they're using these examples. I'm trying to, even in their own framework, I'm trying to understand how they see it. Because it seems like they do see their specific features to the primitive territorial machine that function in this way. And I, 
even in their framework, even if it's not historical, I still don't see it. That's that's my point. To make a brief remark on that, I think it might help to consider they're they're looking for the they're looking to anthropology's discussion of these primitive societies for what they do, in contrast to how psychoanalysis takes it for um you know, tries to edipalize it like they were talking about. I think it was three 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 or three four. But at that level too, like these societies that they're looking at in terms of these um these tracings of the socius and of, of territorializings and representations, I think those form the basic lines of this genealogy. Um and as I've been thinking about like um what to do with this section and this chapter I think you could even walk this out to like building, uh, so like perhaps building a, a group forming, right? In the beginning, it probably kind of looks like this primitive thing um, where you talk about, oh yeah, but we were the original four who got it off the ground and then Steve and George joined. And, you know, there's kind of affiliation that starts forming there. And then you can also talk about how like one of the founders and you, work together and you know then you can start to see the economic and politicality of the alliance come into being until somebody like a uh, central figure comes in as a kind of like despotic figure and which is what they're kind of getting into now so basically like i don't think it's meant to be like a traditional history like lewis saying but i think the genealogy um and, and what it's tracing points to like what these societies are doing and how it effectively um, leads them into to, to tracing these representations, to tracing things like the incest prohibition and, and perhaps even power. I think all these things are connected, uh, power and the incest prohibition. Um, but something you touched upon was how it's not a form of history. And that's right uh, about genealogy. And I remember uh, people here were already saying how, how difficult that word could be. It's kind of a weighty concept. But without even getting into Nietzsche, we can think of genealogy as like certain ideal types for understanding history. Um, they, uh, D&G describe themselves as doing universal history sometimes in the, schizo in the next whatever, schizoanalysis chapter. Um, so these different logical types of social forms are a little bit more like abstract machines. It's not an actual example, you know, that this tribe did this and so that's a despotic machine. It's just that, well, tribes acting in this way more or less embody this, uh, this abstract machine of being a despotic figure which is this one central phallus that overcodes all the new alliances and shit like this. Does that kind of make sense? Click yeah. anybody. Yeah, definitely. I read it um, in this way uh, as well, uh, more like an analogy or some kind of virtual um, history they create here in, in parallel to psychoanalysis and uh, ethnology. Uh, and, and for me, it's... Uh, like we are now at the point where we uh, are talking about the barbarian or the empirical uh, imperial representation and how um, territorial representations um, go over to become uh, barbarian and 
barbarians are the outsiders and now here they are talking about these outsiders they come um, from over the sea from the mountain these initiators that uh, kind of stand outside of the um, regime of the socios and now have um, certain new rights and now have the ability to overcode um, these preceding codes and by that maybe they, these are the predecessors of um, the despots yeah actually I'll Jared's last line there you typed in chat I just want to say universal history is basically a, jo a joke a delusive quadri <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> It's, you know, it's a really fair way to put it, and that helps a lot. It's it's a very simplified way of putting it. It's very true. They're funny, you know. They put these little jokes in there that you'll miss them, you know. Yeah, because you're because I don't I don't get them, but I do after a while, sort of. I I pretend. Um, I I think the point is that uh, you know they consider this a general economy, and so basically they're looking for these um anomalies uh in order to in order to show that that this is a general economy and we know that uh like in egypt the marriage of the sister was a uh, a, a very important part of the uh, you know the way the power was uh structured in egypt because uh, from what from what i've read um you had to be married to the you had to be married to a woman from the family in order to have the power and so in order to keep the power within the family the, they would uh if pre it was preferable to for the marriage to the sister to occur and so and so something that was uh you know anomalous you know, was capitalized on by the 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 ruling power. So I mean, that's all. The, those kinds of those kinds of things are, um, you know, kind of indications that this is a general economy. And I think it's worth pointing out also. Holland makes the comment uh, just because we keep talking about whether or not this is literal or allegorical or just a joke or a story. Uh, he talks actually at length about how. Uh, the idea is that ultimately they're trying to get across is that the despot is in principle everyone's father, but also everyone's son, brother, and spouse. Uh, so it, there's a ubiquity and a natural everything of the phallus that is the despot. So that's kind of what they're pointing out here, not so much the ultra-literal. So, and then the, the other thing is that, uh, you know, they're pointing back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, and in the Epic of Gilgamesh, you know, uh, oddly enough, um, the point of contention is uh, the this um, uh, the um, the deflowering of the of the brides on their uh, wedding night uh, by the by Gilgamesh, and uh, and what happens in the epic is that um, the the women complain to the gods, and so then the gods create Enkidu in the wilderness to come in from, you know, he, he was someone raised with, by the animals and, and he comes in and he's equally powerful to, uh, Gilgamesh. 
and he tries to put a stop to it. And um, uh, and he he is initiated by one of the prostitutes of the city that are sent out to uh, uh, take him from the animal category into the human category uh, through uh, sexual liaison. So so it's uh, and 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 there's a confrontation between Enkidu and Gilgamesh um, where. Uh, Enkidu confronts him over this issue and they fight and Enkidu loses and then they become friends and then they go off on adventures together but it's just interesting that in the earliest epic we have this is the case excellent uh, I'm going to now start moving on because this is why we will never get out of this section because every chapter is every, every paragraph is going to be like this uh, it is clear that incest with the mother has a completely different meaning. This time it is a question of the mother of the tribe, as she exists in the tribe, as the hero finds her in penetrating into the tribe, or finds her again in returning to the tribe after his first marriage. He countersects the extended affiliations with a direct affiliation, with, dire with a direct affiliation, the initiated or initiating hero becomes king. The second marriage develops the consequences of the first. It draws out the effect of the first. The hero begins by marrying the sister, then he marries the mother. The fact that the two acts can, to varying degrees, be bound together, assimilated, does not rule out existence of two sequences of in the phenomenon. <clears throat> the union with the princess sister and the union with the mother queen. Incest goes by twos. The hero is always sitting astride two groups, the one where he leaves to find his sister, the other where he returns to find his mother again. The purpose of this double incest is not to produce a flow, not even a magic flow, but to overcode all existing flows, and to ensure that no intrinsic code, no underlying flow, escapes the overcoding of the despotic machine. Hence, it is by virtue of his sterility that he guarantees the general fecundity. The marriage with the sister is on the outside. It is the wilderness ordeal. It expresses the spatial divergence from the primitive machine. It provides the old alliances with an outcome. It founds the new alliance by effecting a generalized appropriation of all alliance debts. The marriage with the mother is a return to the tribe. It expresses the temporal divergence from the primitive machine, the difference between the generations. It constitutes the direct affiliation that results from the new alliance by affecting a generalized accumulation of affiliative stock. Both marriages are essential to the overcoding as the two ends of a tie for the despotic knot. Um, I, I think this, this just mentioned this paragraph feels like it's more proof that they're talking more allegorical and jokey. Yeah, I found myself laughing at this one. Yeah. Uh, one thing of, of use, though, um, that stood out to me was talking about um, no underlying flow escapes the overcoating of the despotic machine. Hence, it is by virtue of his sterility that he guarantees the general fecundity. Um, I interpreted that to be a 
couple things, but most most importantly, um, this idea of the despot as the father or someone who is the quasi-cause of production because um, his sterility or his kingliness, I guess, to be sterile is a guaranteeing the general fecundity. That's just what's required for production itself. I mean, desiring production and eco- economics and, and all the affiliation and stuff is sort of like owes it to him. So the society is in a power relation to this member of it, to this one sort of exception who, right, um, you know, is sterile but sort of guarantees the reproduction of the social form on a wider scale. Yeah, and in the chat, uh, isn't the despot's body so serious? Yeah, in this case, definitely, yeah. That's what they're talking about here. Yeah, I think that's what they're getting at too, Jack. The, the idea that this is, this is where that becomes the socius because before the alliances and filiations were made by sort of the interchange and interplay of marriages and lineages, now all of those things ultimately bend, instead of being sort of scattered across the earth, are bent back into the despot, all of those lines. That's where they talk about here, too. The flows, overcoating existing flows, redirecting them, all of that to him. I do want to read uh, Roger's comment in the text, though. Maybe a way to understand this passage is to understand how to how uh, law produces a state of exception into an ontology. Each culture will configure this differently depending on real-world politics and necessities. It's like murder. Law prohibits it, but at the same time furnishes the precision of the possibility of murder and in which conditions it is allowed by the state as something outside the system, but also the system. Uh, That's, yeah, that's, uh, the despot is someone who lives both uh, sort of at the very extreme of it, but also is very much part and parcel of the system. Yeah, the despot is someone that... uh breaks these taboos of incest and i find it interesting that uh, they call the marriage with the sister um, something from the outside or that happens on the outside like it has this spatial connotation and the marriage with the mother uh, has a temporal connotation Um, so it's more like um, this picture of uh, a state um, that is on a plane or on, on the same uh, continent with uh, with other states like that they are brothers and sisters but they are not the same with them but still uh, they live in the same plane and then uh, break the taboo of breaking into their um, uh, territory to uh, bind them to them by incest and marriage and uh, at the same way by um, yeah marrying their mother like uh, um interrupting the the historical flow they uh, transform these aspects as well it's hard to to formulate in a in a coherent sense (laughs) well yeah i mean that's (laughs) welcome to what another thing we've said i think every single uh chat for the last four weeks um but I, i i like all of that uh any other thoughts before i move on to the next paragraph Yes, I have one. Um, what interests me about this section is um, I don't think it's necessarily allegorical, although I might be oversensitive that word. To me, it seems like they're talking about the code, right? And like that's not just the legal code, like Roger's saying, right? Like 
That's the political and economic code, and that's the affiliative code, right? It's the way these territorial representations fit together in this, um, at least in the primitive society. Uh, that territorial, rep- territorial representation is very, like, separated, even though they, they they interact in that. They have this kind of autonomy, it seems, uh, whereas, like, with where we're moving in terms of the despot and what they do in terms of um, sort of exploiting this, it's almost like a clause, legally speaking, but um, exploiting this uh, this sort of uh, rights of incest to establish themselves through paranoiac knowledge, right, into this position. It seems to me that um, in that way, we're talking about someone who understands the socius in a sense, or at least understands um, the codes at such a level that they're able to be this kind of, um, because the use of the word hero here is, I think, incredibly um, interesting, right? In this sense, it's almost like they're creating a hero myth by effectively living out the representation, right? And, and in doing so, it, it, it countervails the representation to the to the point, so much so that they can perform this overcoding process, right? They can lay atop uh, the new alliance and the direct affiliation over the previous um uh, so the, the previous primitive representation. All right. Next paragraph. A pause seems in order here while we ask how such thing, such a thing is possible. How is it that incest has become possible, not only possible, but the manifest property and seal of the despot? Who is this sister, this mother? The sister and the mother of the despot himself? Or should the question be framed in a different way? For it concerns the whole system of representation when it ceases to be territorial and becomes imperial. First of all, we have the impression that the elements of the in-depth system of representation have begun to move. The cellular migration has begun that will carry the Oedipal self from one locus of representation to another. In the imperial formation, incest has ceased being the displaced representative desire to become the repressing representation it's on itself. Sorry. Incest has ceased being the displaced representative of desire to becoming the repressed representation itself. For there can be no doubt. This way of... This way the despot has of committing incest and of making it possible in no way involves removing the apparatus of social and psychic repression. On the contrary, the despot's intervention forms part of the apparatus. It changes only the parts of the machine, yet it still as the displaced represented that incest now comes to occupy the position of the repressing representation. Someone make a mark on that. I need that explained to me. Another gain in the sum of repression... A new economy that is repress- in the repressive, repressing apparatus, a new mark, a new severity. It would be easy, too easy, if it were enough to make incest possible and to implement this in sovereign fashion, so that the exercise of psychic repression and the service of social repression would be made to end. The royal barbarian incest is merely the means to overclothe the flows of desire, certainly not a means to liberate them. Uh, gonna have someone read that at some point. O Caligula, O Heliogabulus, O mad memory of vanished emperors. Incest never having been the desire, but merely its displaced represented as it results from psychic repression. Social repression has everything to gain when incest comes to take the place of the representation itself 
and in this capacity take charge of the repressing function. That is what we've already seen in psychosis, where the intrusion of the complex into consciousness, according to the tradition criterion, did not, to be sure, alleviate the repression of desire. With incest's new position in the imperial formation, we are therefore speaking only of a migration in the in-depth elements of representation, which will render the latter more foreign, more ruthless, more definitive, and more infinite with respect to desiring production. But this migration would never be possible if there did not occur, correlatively, a considerable change in the other elements of representation, those elements that operate on the surface of the inscribing socius. Okay, I have so many questions, but I'm going to let everyone, if anyone has a thought that they want to just jump in, I've got a bunch of questions on this section. I'm, I'm taking that as no one has a thought, which is fine. Uh, there's a lot happening here. Um, does someone want to just do me a favor? There's that sentence I asked to put a pen in. Um, The, the idea of the repressed and displaced repressing representation, that and all of that just feels like word salad when I look at it right now. Yeah, it's something having to do with, with incest or something having to do with how it's uh, represented to desire. Uh, that, uh, I don't know, the only thing that really made sense to me was more in the analytics section, so probably the last chapter talking about uh like oh well you must desire actually this like just the psychoanalysis as an instance of overcoding the unconscious to just say uh well you must everything has to be interpreted as the father and the mother um this in this sort of way making incest possible as something represented it's kind of like uh Maybe it's not, it's not in this section, but we'll see it later about how the despot sort of has his privileged position as having access to the mother. And right. He becomes, he occupies the limit that was previously vacant under the previous social formation. Now the despot has, actually has this level of uh, new alliance to, to All right, well, I'm, commit my I'm, sort I, of symbolic act. It, it may be worth us taking a second to sort of break down because it's, uh, in the imperial formation, incest has ceased being the displaced represented of desire to becoming the repressing representation itself. Uh, so, because before it was the taboo is not actually what is desired. I don't actually, like, there's no desire to fuck one's sister that doesn't sort of exist in us. But here they're saying it does. Um, please. Oh, yeah. Uh, with that example you just gave, um, I know there's some line where they say in this book, uh, you, it's impossible to infer anything about desire, only knowing from what is, uh, what is displaced, what is prohibited to desire. So just because you can't do something doesn't mean that you actually wanted to do that. That's that's only as far as I can take you. <laughs> if uh, no, it's it's fair. Uh, down the field, Alyosha, do you have your mic? What up? I, I I'd love you to go over what you're chatting about in in chat because I thought as you did that the displaced represented precedes repressing representation, but 
that's not what they're saying here, uh, as far as I can tell. And so now I'm confused. I mean, I think I think it still is what they're saying because they're saying it it becomes the they specifically say it becomes the repressing representation. So I mean, that implies that displaced represented is prior, right? That that's how I would understand it. Right, um, but. I mean, it, okay. In in timeline, it does become it is a thing that is prior. The it is the displaced represented in uh, the savage times, and as we move into despotic times, it becomes the repressing representation itself. But would that then imply this sentence uh, and what you said? Then basically say, oh, actually, at this point in time, now it is something that is it comes before. It is it is always with us at this point. I mean, I'm trying to remember there was an earlier section where they talked about, you know, this thing about the taboo. And we were saying it now, like that the, the taboo doesn't represent what is actually desired, but it is a way that it effectively creates that desire for itself as it becomes, I don't know, hegemonic. I don't think that's the language they would use. But to me, that, that seems to be what it's saying of like, once it passes into the despotic phase... The, the simultaneous movement of the, the prohibition of incest, but then, you know, I guess I'm trying to think of it in the royal context, like you guys were saying, the allowing it with these exceptional cases, it sort of re reveals, I guess, to them that it isn't actually, you know, it that desire was manufactured because there's there's a specific purpose it serves at the top of the hierarchy of the, the coding, I guess. Okay. No, no, I think I think that's fair. I think I think that's I think that's fair. And the the way that they're going about it, when they push from uh, the discussion, the the sentence I've highlighted incest has ceased being the displaced representative, becoming the repressing representation itself. They then go directly into talking about uh, another gain in the sum of repression, a new economy in the repressive repressing apparatus, a new mark, a new severity, uh, social repression. And uh, that switch, because at that point, the, 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 as soon as we actually do want incest and it becomes a thing that is prohibited socially now, not just uh, rep uh, repressing representation itself, but it's actually too easy if it were enough to make incest possible to implement this in a sovereign fashion, so that the exercise of psychic repression and the service of social repression would be made to end. The incest, royal barbarian incest is merely mean to overclode flows of desire. Um, all right, I'll, I'll read from the chat. Uh, as for Oedipus, is that what you're talking about, uh, Park? Yeah, it seems like. Yeah. As for Oedipus in general, it is not the repressed, that is the representative of desire, which is on the side of and completely ignorant of daddy-mommy. Nor is it the repressing representation, which is beyond and which renders the persons discernible only by subjecting them to homosexual rules of alliance. Incest is only the retroactive effect of the repressing representation on the repressed representative. The representation disfigures or displaces this representative against which it is directed. It projects onto the representative categories rendered discernible that it has itself established. It applies to the representative terms that did not exist before the alliance organized the positive and the negative into a system and extension. The representation reduces the representative to what is blocked in the system. Oedipus is indeed the limit, but the displaced limit that now passes into the interior of the socius. Oedipus is the baited image with which desire allows itself to be caught. That's what you wanted. The decoded flows were incest. Then a long story begins, the long story of Oedipalization. 
But to be exact, exact, everything begins in the mind of Laius, the old group homosexual, the pervert, who sets a trap for desire. Desire is that, too. Trap. Territorial representation comprises these three instances. The repressive representative, the repressing representation, the displaced representative. So are we going back to, so uh, as we were talking about uh, two sections ago, the, uh, effectively Oedipus being this zombie that can just devour all desire, and as soon as it's able to connect with desire, all it does is basically produce this Oedipal incestuous desire from it. And it's, it's, it's impossible to get away from that hook. That basically we're talking about step two in that process here, where where we began with incest is it was a thing that was maybe not desired, but it was prohibited because it would break filiation or alliances. One of those two things would be destroyed and we needed to basically survive. So we had those things as, as prohibitions, less because they were our desires, but more because they're natural. As the despot takes power, the despot comes in and goes, well, actually, now you owe me everything. Therefore, actually, it, sister, mother, my wife is your queen, which means the mother, and I get to fuck her. I am the extension of everyone's phallus, and my daughter is the sist is everyone's sister, and it feels not making the connection. Um, I I think you're on the right track, though. If you go back to the previous section when they talk about, um the the despotic machine right one of the things that the despotic machine does is it introduces abstracity right the abstract and it one of the ways it does this that they elaborate on in the section is through the introduction of writing right writing allows for abstraction whereas when you're you're dealing with um the more pictographic and, and the the more spoken language this, this oral culture that um, we have in the primitive society. It's not exactly working that way, right? So in terms of uh, semiosis, right, if I remember correctly, the displaced represented, the displaced represented, yeah, the displaced represented is the signified, I'm sorry, the repressing representation is the signifier, and in that way it's, it's um, the physical marking, right? It's, it's something that can be marked on the body or the object. And in that way, for an oral culture, that's really important because they're not dealing with um, the written. They're not dealing with the accounting that the um, we're going to see develop in this written society. And so at that level, this is where we talked a little bit about, like, I compared it with double vision, where because the, the despotic machine is introducing these abstracities and it's overcoding and the, almost like it's laying bricks over the the previous system, the previous territorial representation, but not negating it, but simply creating this kind of pol- polarized tension atop of it. There's this oh, kind of so, double vision quality to it that leads us to the the signified here, which is that abstract quality so, of the so, sign. So, okay, so Holland, uh, the quote that's, that I'm reading, I've, I've got it open in another uh, window. But Holland's line here, royal incest is still not yet the incest of every man's psychoanalytic Oedipus complex, though we are one step closer. For this form of incest exercises its mode of repression, not by universally forbidding it, but by making it licit for the despot alone within a system of rigid caste distinction. Yeah, it's like uh, a hierarchy that is built. Um, 
like the despot uh, and in this imperial formation there's some kind of taboo a law or some kind of uh, traditional habit that a society has like uh, the incest prohibition or any other law or habit in a society that is like a dogma and by um yeah taking this displaced represented of desire and uh, make it a, rep a repressing representation uh, you take the power of it as a despot and then you create um your own law like uh, in your own sense and use it for your um for your gain like they write um incest never having been the desire but merely it's displaced represented as it results from psychic repression social repression has everything to gain when incest comes to take the place of the representation itself and in this capacity take charge of the repressing function like uh, i read it as a form of uh, transformation uh, of power and of um yeah like um the, the royalty of signifying and creating rules and habits in a society or in a culture. That's great. Thank you. Actually, I'm starting to, I'm starting to connect a little bit more. Uh, any last bits before we move on to the next, I'm trying to make sure we keep a decent pace here uh, to the next paragraph. Just want to point out that, um, we haven't quite made it to Oedipus here yet either, right? They write, the cellular mi migration has begun that will carry the Oedipal cell from one locus of representation to another. In the empirical, in the imperial formation, incest has ceased being the displaced representative desire to become the repressing representation itself, right? So at that level, we're not actually dealing with Oedipus circulating, but we're seeing how the the representation and the kind of structure, uh, I don't use the word structure, the way that that corresponds to at least the affiliative and alliant both prohibits and inhibits um, within itself. And in, in, in that um, in that very same process, right, it allows for its own, um, its own sort of triumphing, right? It allows for a despot to, to sort of seize the power in a sense. Well, and the last the last sentence of this, and it's why I wanted to get into the next paragraph. Um, but this migration would never be possible if there did not occur correlatively a considerable change in other elements of representation. Those elements that operate on the service of the inscribing socius. Uh, the idea of how representation is changing during this time itself. The, the nature of representational. Um, it's it's all it's all linked. Uh, it's all linked. Uh, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into the next paragraph. What changes singularly in the surface organization of representation is the, represent, is the relationship between the voice and graphism. It is the despot who establishes the practice of writing. Most ancient authors saw this clearly. It is the imperial formation that makes graphism into a series of writing and into a system of writing in the proper sense of the term. Legislation, bureaucracy, accounting, the collection of taxes, the state monopoly, imperial justice, the functionary's activity, historiography, everything is written in the despot's procession. Let us return to the paradox that emerges from the analyses of Leroy Gorhan. Primitive societies are oral, not because they lack a graphic system, but because, on the contrary, the graphic system in these societies is independent of the voice. 
It marks signs on the body that respond to the voice, react to the voice, but that are autonomous and do not align themselves on it. In return, barbarian civilizations are written, not because the voice has been lost, but because the graphic system has lost its independence and its particular dimensions, has aligned itself on the voice, and has become subordinated to the voice, enabling it to extract from the voice a deterritorialized abstract flux that it retains and makes reverberate in that linear code of writing. In short, graphism in one and the same movement begins to depend on the voice and induces a mute voice from on high or from beyond, a voice that begins to depend on graphism. It is by subordinating itself to the voice that writing supplants it. Anyone want to jump in here? Because they're about to get into Derrida, and I'm not as familiar with Derrida. So, so uh, Leroy uh, Gorhan, um, you know, his book is available, and I skimmed it uh, when it was mentioned before. And uh, one of the things that, you know, we're not taking into account, I think, is how much they're uh, taking his view of the primitive and and uh, and kind of uh, say you know t- accepting it as the the correct view, and he does make this uh, interesting uh, distinction between graphism and voice, uh, and it it has to do with the the also the relationship between the hand and the face and the hand and the mouth as a as a opposite modalities in the development of technology. And uh, and so I think, you know, I mean, one of the things we'd have to do to get the full picture here is go and read uh, that book by uh, Leroy Gorhan uh, in order to get a full picture of what the, you know, their idea of what primitive society was like, because it was quite different than I had uh, uh, gotten the picture of just reading this text. To expand, too, on like his idea, right? Where, um, so I'll just read the passage and I'll make my point. In return, barbarian civilizations are written not because the voice has been lost, but because the graphic system has lost its independence and its particular dimensions, has aligned itself on the voice, and has become subordinated to the voice, enabling it to extract from the voice a deterritorialized abstract flux that it retains and makes reverberate in the linear code of writing. So right, like this is this is part of their point um, that I think is a really big theme in what's happening with the despotic in the sense that like in the primitive, even though you have the lateral alliance and the extended filiation, they have this what appears to be this sort of um, this sort of like zoning with each other, right, where they're not really crossing, and that's kind of where the incest prohibition seems to come into play um, in, in the primitive society is to prevent this crossing as opposed to the despot who, um, who, you know, finds out that, um, right, who finds a way to do this crossing and therefore um, tie the affiliative and alliant to themselves and their, thereby establish themselves in the seat of power um, and, you know, establish the, the first principles of paranoia knowledge and that. But what I think, I think is interesting here too is in a similar way they seem to extend that theme of like these autonomous 
um, two dimensions, this autonomous duplexity, um, getting the lines blurred in the same way with uh, with the vocal and with the the graphic, right? In terms of um, in terms of uh, not just writing, but effectively, um, I mean, this takes us into a form of uh, recording. This takes us into like how communication is bound up in representation, but also um, right as part of psychic and social repression. So. So when it says the graphism in one and the same movement begins to depend on the voice, what they're talking about there is uh, the alphabet, the development of the alphabet. And uh, Leroy Gorhan um, had this idea that that graphics were two-dimensional and much richer than uh, writing with alphabets. And, you know, he talks about the development of Chinese and uh, Sumerian and Mayan writing as being uh, pictorial. And, um, and so he had this idea that, that gra- graphism was independent of the voice and that it becomes aligned with the voice. And that was a loss of um, degrees of freedom for expression when the, when the graphism became uh, aligned with the voice through the alphabet. I, I I don't think it's just the alphabet. I think it's it's markings. So another point uh, that Leroy Gorman, Gorhan uh, did was he did an analysis of the cave paintings uh, in France, and uh, and he had this idea that there was a kind of logic to where those uh, those paintings were. Um, uh, existed within the cave and that was kind of like that that expression of graphism was much richer than um than like for instance later alphabetical kinds of um uh, writing and uh it's worth just bringing up in the chat room a conversation around Bataille's concept of glorious expenditure uh worth reading a bit on but it does get into that on the next paragraph and so i want to make sure we don't get too down that road because they're about to get into a whole lot of uh other thoughts from a lot of other thinkers and we're gonna have a lot of discussion of yeah any anyone have last thoughts before we dive into the next paragraph well one one last thing i'd like to make is that leroy gorhan was uh, not a, a, a regular academic. He w- he was much more versatile than most academics, and he he delved into a lot of different areas than most academics would delve into. And he was himself a kind of anomaly uh, in that he tried to create a uh, a complete picture of the evolution from the primitive into society uh, with the evolution of human beings and. And Pierre Gordon, you know, the strange book that was mentioned before, I think I, I think I got that book out and read it. And uh, it is a very strange book. But, uh, but, but the point I wanted to make is that these people that he's referring to are themselves anomalies. They're, he's not, they're, they're not picking the, uh, the uh, you know, the, the general consensus authors in these various traditions. They're, they're, they're picking the outliers to base their theory on.
And it's interesting because throughout the book, they're, they've gone back and forth. And it may be, uh, I, wonder, I do wonder, and someone who probably has a better understanding of the timing of all of this would know, um, they've referenced early on a lot of people who at the time were fringe, but actually over time we've come to accept as, as more mainstream in their thought process of how they dealt with the history of things. So it's maybe an interesting perspective. Um, all right. Uh, Could I make please, John? Go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah, and I'll even volunteer to read if that makes sense. Yeah, go for it. the sale, right? It, it does. It helps um, a lot. Thank you. <laughs> cool. So, um, I just want to real quick highlight those last two sentences uh, with like the grace note, if you will. Uh, reading into them, a deterritorialized abstract flutz that it retains and makes reverberate in the linear code of writing. This goes back to what I'm calling like the double vision, right? This abstract um, where we're getting into like the signified here in, in the despot society and sort of like the more mental side of things, which is intimately tied into the the form of writing we're going to see develop. And I think that's important to highlight because when, when they, they finish off by saying, um, in short, graphism in one and the same movement begins to depend on the voice and induces a mute voice from on high or from the beyond, a voice that begins to depend on graphism. It is by subordinating itself to the voice that writing supplants it. So like, right, like what's part of what's going on is this inversion between um, the autonomy of writing and uh, the graphic, which as I'm understanding it, is, is marking. Um, in, in a very broad sense, but in that sense, um, we're seeing this this process of marking, right, of graphism. Well, okay, becoming... so if if you look at Leroy Gorhan, what he's talking about is like pictographs, like the pictures that are in the caves in France. That that's what Leroy Lee, uh, you know, and and. That became like, for instance, cuneiform. It became hieroglyphs. It became the Chinese characters. Pictograms. Yeah. Yes, and that's why I, I made the point that, like, I think the graphic is not necessarily the alphabetical. It, it seems to be. It doesn't seem to just fall in that that subset. But I think what's um to to make my point real quick. Um, I think it's worth noting that the voice begins to depend on graphism, right? Because with writing in that sense, the voices in the society and, and like even uh, voices of power, right, in terms of the alliance and even the affiliative, are beginning to de are, are beginning to depend more directly on uh, graphism in that sense, more directly on writing, um, such that there's an important power relationship where kind of reminded me of like a master-slave dialectic, but um, it is by subordinating itself to the voice that writing supplants it, right? Writing seems to be subordinate to the voice, but yet writing supplants the voice, right? Like this is an, it reminds me of working in a business where what you say is one thing, but what we record an email on that seems to trumpet every time. This is like a very simple legal trick even. Well, it's and I think a lot of that their their last thing here, because I think we're having like this discussion around the concept of what they mean by the mute voice here. To me, it's um, if I have a pictogram on a cave wall of a buffalo being attacked or whatever it may be, or or even hieroglyphs, 
my interpretation of those isn't direct words. It's, it's the emotions, thoughts. It's a, basically how we handle art versus the moment I start assigning letters to sounds and words end up having direct meaning. As I read them, I'm not saying them aloud. There is that disembodied voice that is reading them to me, that mute voice that does not have sound. That as I'm reading this and I'm reading through, for example, the Discord chat right now, I'm not reading these things aloud. There's no voice doing it. It's a mute voice, even though I'm reading it. That thing that happened suddenly uh, where once voice in theory was the one that was, you know, uh, the power struggle was very much in favor of the voice that switched with writing and suddenly writing became that because it subordinated itself to the voice. Um, I'd just like to uh, give an example of uh, Namer's palette, you know, where Namer was the first pharaoh of uh, Egypt in the early dynastic period. And he, 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 he has this palette where he's conquering other, um, other, uh, other uh, tribes or countries. And, uh, and so this, this palette uh, is an example of of graphism, um, you know, of the kind that that relates to the the, the despot's power. I'm going to continue reading. <clears throat> Jacques Derrida is correct in saying that every language presupposes a writing system from which it originates. If by that he means existence and the connection of some sort of graphism, writing in the largest sense of the term. He is also right in saying that, within writing in the narrow sense, hardly any breaks can be established between pictographic, ideogrammic, and phonetic procedures. There is always and already an alignment on the voice, same time as a substitution for the voice, supplementarity. And phonetism is never all-powerful, has also always already begun to labor and elaborate the mute signifier. He is again correct in linking writing to incest in a mysterious fashion, but we see nothing in his link that would lead us to conclude in favor of the constancy of an apparatus of psychic repression, operating in the manner of a graphic machine capable of performing as well by means of hieroglyphs as by phonemes. For there is indeed a break that changes everything in the world of representation, between this writing in the narrow sense and writing in the broad sense. That is, between two completely different orders of inscription, a graphism that leaves the voice dominant by being independent of the voice while connecting with it, and a graphism that dominates or supplants the voice by depending on it in various ways and by subordinating itself to the voice. The primitive territorial sign is self-validating. It is a position of desire in a state of multiple connections. It is not a sign of a sign nor a desire of a desire. It knows nothing of linear subordination and its reciprocity, neither pictogram nor ideogram. It is rhythm and not form, zigzag and not line, artifact and not idea, production and not expression. Let us try to summarize the differences between these two forms of representation, territorial and imperial. That paragraph is very clear to me. Uh, if anyone <laughs> clear to me i'm sure everyone else it is too but i just want to make sure everyone's following what we're talking about since it's directly connected why don't you go on to the next paragraph yeah it it, it, it i want to make sure just everyone's cool before i move on because otherwise this is going to be a lot for us to discuss does anyone have an issue so far cool 
In the first place, territorial representation is made up of two heterogeneous elements, voice and graphism. The former is like the representation of words constituted in lateral alliance, while the latter is like the representation of things of bodies established in extended filiation. The former acts on the latter. While the latter reacts on the former, each element having its own particular force that is connoted along with those with that of the other, so as to perform the great task of germinal intense repression. What is repressed, in fact, is the full body at the foundation of the intense earth, which must yield its place to the socius in extension, into which the intensities in question pass or fail to pass. The full body of the earth must assume an extension in the socius and as the socius. The primitive socius covers itself in this manner with a network wherein one is continually jumping from words to things and from bodies to appellations according to the extensive requirements of the system in its length and its width. What we call the order of connotation is an order in which the word, as a vocal sign, designates something, but where the thing designated is no less a sign, because it is furrowed by a graphism that is connoted in conjunction with the voice. The heterogeneity, the divergence, the disequilibrium of the two elements vocal and graphic, is resolved by a third element, the visual, the eye. It might be said of this eye that it sees the word, it sees it, does not read it, insofar as it evaluates the suffering caused by the graphism. Jean-Francois Léotard has attempted to describe such a system in another context where the word has only a designation, designating function, but does not of itself constitute the sign. What becomes a sign is rather the thing or body designated as such, insofar as it reveals an unknown facet described on it, traced by the graphism that responds to the word. The gap between the two elements is bridged by the eye, which sees the word without reading it, inasmuch as it appraises the pain emanating from the graphism applied to the flesh itself. The eye jumps. Could, so, yeah, go ahead, please. So, so I'd just like to, to um, you know, say that, the, you know, Leroy, Leroy Gorhan has this idea that the vocal and the graphic are two completely different ways of relating to things and it seems like this bringing in the eye uh is uh what what's being added here by Deleuze and Guattari but this is also something that comes from Lacan because Lacan um makes the voice and the uh and the eye the gaze uh uh you know uh functions of desire uh, going beyond Freud, so it, so basically, what they're doing here, it seems to me, is they're kind of legitimizing Lacan's um, emphasis on the eye and the gaze in uh, uh, in his work, based on the work of uh, Leroy Gorham. And, and and this is different from Derrida, so they're they're differentiating themselves from Derrida. Who, who has a different take on this uh, relationship between speech and writing. Uh, 
Um, I have one question. Since we do have Roger here, if Roger is still listening. <laughs> um, um, yes, I am. I'm, I'm wondering about the translation of the word body and bodies in this paragraph, because it feels like I'm missing something to that word, because I don't understand why they're using the term bodies in this section. Because I obviously there's lines we can draw and parallels we can draw that are very specific, but why use the term body and bodies here? Uh, I would need to look for it because I uh, I was doing uh, was publishing stuff. Um, so give me a few minutes and I'll come back to you. Yeah, no worries. It's worth asking. I'm just trying to figure out because the representation of things of bodies established in extended filiation. What do they mean by bodies there? Does anyone have a way to point me in the right direction? Because they use the term body all the time. And I don't think they're referring to the body without organs here. Uh, I don't believe so yet. Uh, so it's literally the first run on large ass goddamn sentence. Uh, fourth line. Well, the latter is like the representation of things, of bodies established in extended filiation. Anyone? I mean, literally anyone can jump in. Have a microphone. So I'll, I'll take a crack at it. What, what I think they're setting up here is they're talking about how territorial representation operates with these two elements um, in, in, similar, in, in similar relationship to the alliance and affiliative. So voice is compared with uh, the representations of words constituted in lateral lines, whereas graphism is compared with the representation of things of bodies established in extended filiation, right? And when the, the despot creates the despotic representation in that, or rather the despotic machine creates it, this is what is um, at stake, right? These are part of the changing parts. Right. So I think part right. of the reason no, you're but, using word. But my, this is my issue with the words. The word body here has. Uh, English is such a shitty language for this. Uh, the word body has a couple of, I would say, pretty diverse uh, ways of using it. Uh, the two that come to mind, and the reason I'm having trouble with this is on the one hand, the human body. It's uh, the thing that I am, uh, the separation of people as individuals. And then the second is body, as in body of work, body of writing, the, the large grouping of things. Uh, uh, and that feels like what they're saying here, but bodies is, is a decor. So maybe they do mean, well, that's weird. That, that's why I think it's helpful to think about in terms of affiliation, right? You're it's talking physical about bodies. the vertical hierarchy of how things and how things, even in the sense of like bodies, right, um, are vertically related in the same oh, way that I think like bodies and organs have that kind of relationship. Yeah, I reread it in French. And um, so, you know, the first one is the representation of a word. So it's a representation of a symbol. And the other one would be a representation of a body as the material aspect that it refers to. So uh, I think they're making this difference. And then they say, um, they say something about the corps plein. It's like a full body. I don't know. But like this is from Merleau-Ponty. Maybe Ken could like pitch in on that. It's uh, the full body in uh, Merleau-Ponty. That doesn't mean 
you know, just a body that is full, you know, it's, 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 it's clever, more clever than that. Well, then it's going yeah, I right really over my head. So it's like the example where they, they said in a previous section, consider the clock. At one level, when we look at the clock, we were telling time, and there's, of course, a relationship there. But then yeah. it also reinforces the territoriality um, that is on the clock, right, which is that of a nine-to-five job. So, right, it reinforces, um, in, in the example I'm using at least, it reinforces a capitalist workday, reinforces the territorial representation on the object or body of the clock. All right, I'm going to continue reading because I, I, we do get for, further on to the three sides and they talk a little bit more about the body. Uh, thank you for that, Roger. I, I, it just felt English language is confusing to read these things, so it's tough. Yeah, but, but even the translation, uh, sometimes it becomes difficult because of certain styles. And even in French, you need to reread it like a few times. So, well, I, it was, no, I would go it, with it, the idea that, that body here is intended to mean something slightly more clever than just body. Uh, that it's... No, no, but that's the thing. That's that. That's the problem that a lot of people have with Deleuze and Guattari. It's it's like they, they they tend to make stuff so complicated, but it's not. Compared to like the other French authors, they are way more simple. When they mean something, when they say something, they mean that thing. It's not like multi-level of understanding. Well, you know? no, but the 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 translation, the difficulty for me when they use the term. I uh, hear the first time I read it, and I think I'm starting to grasp it more. Is it was representation of bodies, a humans and people inside of, and that's not right. Whereas I think uh, Jared puts it nicely: it's uh, assemblages, material bodies of things. Yes, yes, yes. And I exactly. like that. Well, that makes a lot more sense uh, to me. Again, the difficulty of yeah. trying to grasp what they're trying to say. So I think it's slightly more it's slightly more clever than I put it normally, but not quite as clever as some people go. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah. Goddamn. But fucking, yeah, it's these a, fucking guys. Because I don't have the I don't have the English version to today. I'm not following the English version. I'm just into the French one. But do they it, it, they say it's la représentation de choses? Parenthesis the car. So it, do they say the representation of things? Parenthesis of body. They don't use bodies. They use they use uh, hyphens, uh, which again different. Uh, no, but that that is what they say. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, it's the direct translation. So it's a very direct translation. Yeah. I think um, one of the first things you you brought up. When, when you saw the words bodies was you're like, okay, so these aren't BWOs. So I think uh, we don't need to get so confused as to think that every body has to be a BWO. But for instance, I think when they're saying bodies here, they're meaning like they can be relatively coded or uncoded. And the BWO is like the limit of being totally destratified, totally not organized at all. But here in the third chapter, we're thinking about social processes. Yeah, someone says territorialized by the territorial machine, definitely. But once it's in the imperial representation, which is the section we're reading now, the body itself becomes more overcoded and more like um, one thing Lacan uh, himself, like we talk about, is uh, endogenous or erogenous zones, whatever, I can't pronounce it, but how the body gets coded from infancy into adulthood as certain zones 
erog becomes erogenized, erogenous zones, instead of the whole body. So instead, this same process can happen to the body of the earth, or even like the whole body, every organ gets assigned a sort of role within the social structure, whether it's an imperial one or it's a uh, primitive inscriptive one. Uh -huh. I guess, uh, but for this passage, it's a way too complicated thought, because as I read this uh, first sentence of the paragraph, uh, this with in the first place, blah, 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 um, territory representation is made up of two heterogeneous elements, voice and graphism. Then they uh, try to differentiate these and voice is constituted uh, by the lateral alliance. Uh, these are the representation of words, like words are created in the uh, lateral alliances, like in the communication with other people and the latter graphisms, uh, like inscriptions, every kind of symbol uh, start as a representation of things, of bodies, like in the world, like uh, a cow that gets uh, sketched on a wall and then slowly over generations get um, transformed into different letters. And um, these both systems of voice and graphism um, interact with each other like in this intense repression they are talking about. Definitely, definitely. When something that you're going to want to keep in mind is when D&G talk about representation in this way, it is a repressive function. So the represent representation of things slash bodies or, or hyphen bodies, as it's written in this sentence, it's like these things are becoming subordinated to well, their representation, their social representation as it's inscribed on the socius. But... Anyways, this comes, this comes, what they're saying is that this comes from a writing system rather than an oral or spoken tradition, which is more open, which is more capable of uh, being adapted and going both ways versus an overcoated imperial system of writing, which is going to be structured around uh, hard, um, hard binaries that are exclusive, mutually exclusive and, and And yeah, and that is not interactive, but uh, linear in a sense. I, I actually, Because, the thing, uh, I really, I just want, I'm, I'm going to let you finish, but I really like yeah, that specific thing you just said, that triad, uh, that they're call it linear. I, that actually really hits me in a really nice way because it's, that there is a nature to that. What you're, what you're talking about, the dynamism of a, of a, purely vocal voice versus graphism, which becomes uh, etched in stone for lack of a better term, but in but also has a very linear nature to how it moves forward rather than the dynamism of a story passed down. I really like how you put that. Thank you. Yeah, because these are uh, the... the Yeah, maybe proto-syntactic uh, syntactic systems, um, maybe not in a... Uh, in a way of, of symbols like, like paintings on a cave wall, but later alphabets and uh, stuff like that, or uh, bureaucratic processes, these are all um, uh, syntactical uh, in a sense, that they have distinct elements that you have to read in a linear order, uh, like an algorithm. So one thing we ought oh, to mention is... So uh, One thing we ought to mention is what Derrida says, which is that, um, you know, that that in our tradition, there is this bias, uh, which he calls logocentrism toward the voice and this uh, repression of writing. And so, you know, uh, 
grammatology is about that. Uh, and he, he ba- Derrida based that on a, uh, a work which had been done uh, just before that, uh, which was a kind of uh, uh, discussion of, of writing in general across the earth. And uh, but but uh, even though the first writing was like hieroglyphs or uh, cuneiform, uh, Dara doesn't doesn't really go into the the as far as I remember the difference between that and alphabetical writing so much. But here, you know, what they're focusing on is the difference between the earlier writing systems that were non-alphabetical and the the later alf- alphabetical writing. Systems. And there's a big difference between those. It's, it's actually maybe worth reading the footnote before we move on. Uh, Leotard reestablishes the overly neglected rights of a theory of pure designation. He shows the irreducible gap between the word and the thing in the relationship of designation that connotes them. By virtue of this gap, it is the thing designated that becomes the sign by revealing an unknown facet as a hidden content. Words are not themselves signs. They transform into signs, the things or bodies they designate. At the same time, it is the designating word that becomes visible, independently of any writing reading, by revealing a strange ability to be seen, not read. See Leotard, Discourse Figure, uh, reference 85. Words are not things, but as soon as there is a word, the object designated becomes a sign, which means precisely that it conceals a hidden content within its manifest identity, that it reserves another face for another view focused on it, which perhaps will never be seen, but which in return will be viewed in the word itself. Hmm. Um, I, w- I want to make one quick point before we move Go for it. Um, into the next paragraph, too, though. Because I, I think it's important to flesh out a little bit further than... Um, this analogy they're making with, uh, or rather this relationship between the aligned affiliative, because as these objects are tied up with the affiliative, right, we're talking about how objects um, and, and bodies build up vertically. But in, in that same regard, I think there's also a sense of like, you know, whose stuff it is, right, and where it fits in society, where it fits in terms of the economic and the power, um, also in a, a horizontal sense. And in that way, right, by in, as we're moving into the society where the, the abstraction is um, coming into being and that, I think this is going to get more and more important because what a, what a system of accounting, a system of law, um, all in this, this, in this particular use of writing, as they say in the formal sense of writing, does is it ties this stuff to a certain way, not only back to the despot and their center of power, but it does so by connecting it in a certain vertical and horizontal way. And I think that's why it's really critical that they're using uh, leotard here so explicitly to talk about designation and the eye here, because in the primitive society, the eye extracts the surplus code from the veritable uh, theater of cruelty. But here they're also making the point that there is this, um, there is this vocal sign and there is this graphic sign, right? And the eye is designating, um, the, the eye is the intermediary is designating these signs, right? And in that way, the eye has a tremendous use of power here because it is effectively designating signs, calling them out, um, you know, finding them, so to speak. 
And I think that's going to be really critical as we're watching this representation um, go through this genealogy. Well, it's, I mean, that's a really nice way to dovetail. I'm going to start reading now because that's immediately what the next paragraph is about. Uh, the magic triangle with its three sides, voice audition, grass fism, body, eye pain, thus seems to us to be an order of connotation. A system of cruelty, where the word has essentially designated function, but where the graphism itself constitutes sign in conjunction with the thing designated, and where the eye goes from one to the other, extracting and measuring the visibility of the one against the pain of the other. Everything in the system is active, enacted, or reacting. Everything is a matter of use and function. So that when one considers the whole of territorial representation, one is struck by the complexity of the networks with which it covers the socius. The chain of territorial signs is continually jumping from one element to another, radiating, radiating in all directions, emitting detachments wherever there are flows to be selected, including disjunctions, consuming remains, extracting surplus values, connecting words, bodies, sufferings, and formulas, things, and effects, affects, connoting voices, graphic traces, and eyes, always in polyvocal usage, a way of jumping that cannot be contained within an order of meaning, still less within a signifier. And if incest seemed impossible to us from this point of view, it is because incest is nothing other than a jump that necessarily fails, this jump that goes from appellations to persons, bodies. On the one hand, the repressed this side of, of appellations, that do not yet designate persons, but only intensive germinal states. On the other hand, the repressing beyond that only applies appellations to persons by prohibiting persons answer to the names of sister, mother, father. Between the two, the shallow stream where nothing passes, or the appellations do not adhere to the person. persons allude to the graphic action where the eye no longer has anything to see or evaluate. Incest, the simple displaced limit, neither repressed nor repressing, but merely the displaced representative of desire. From this moment on, it appears indeed, the two dimensions of representation, its surface organization, elements voice graphi eye. Again, voice graphi eye, and its in-depth organization, the represented instances of desire repressing, representation, displaced represented, share the same fate, like a system of correspondences in the heart of a given social machine. <clears throat> Anyone? Just sounds, just sounds that if we dismiss language, we're going to have a lot of fun. Feels like, uh, yeah, especially the written word. Like, for sure, we need to get rid of the written word and direct signs. Written word sucks. So, chat, what are you saying today? <laughs> I know there's no getting rid of the written word. I'm reading your chat right now. I wish I could. Okay. Um... Let's let's take a step by step. First, uh, I'd love if anyone wants to jump in on one sentence that struck me uh, that's interesting. So that when one considers the whole of territorial representation, one is struck by the complexity of the networks with which it covers the socius. 
and it goes through all of the different setups. And then the line, a way of jumping, a polyvocal usage, a way of jumping that cannot be contained within an order of meaning. Can anyone give me an example? What that means, anyone? I actually, I kind of took it in terms of like, so I, I could be wrong here, but it reminded me of Saucier in the sense that like, the sign doesn't take you to the referent. I see it as this, um, yeah, reference to structuralism that, um, these signs don't have their meaning in them, uh, not even in their signifier, that when you look at the strict signifier or what it means in a specific situation, you don't grasp this whole uh, system, this chain of territorial signs uh, that is continually jumping, like these these are heterogenic, um, because it's this uh, territorial representative system of, of so many different change that have different codes, um, like... Um, yeah, they're they are using uh, connecting words, voices, graphic traces, maybe even uh, processes and bureaucracy. All this stuff uh, is connected, uh, connected in different um, networks and structures that build a, a um, kind of meta structure that is this uh, whole system of representations that you can't reduce to a sim uh, single meaning or to the signifiers themselves. And so that's applicable to incest in the sense that uh, incest itself is this kind of jump that doesn't work because we have uh, a lot of assumptions made around the signifier, even though the signifier itself may have little to no bearing on reality. The, the, the passage might really be um, elucidating here. And if incest seemed impossible to us from this point of view, it is because incest is nothing more, I'm sorry, no, is nothing other than a jump that necessarily fails. This jump goes from appellations to persons, from names to bodies. On the other hand, the repressed this side of, of appellations that do not yet designate persons, but only intensive germinal states. On the other hand, the repressing beyond that only applies appellations to persons by prohibiting persons who answer to the names of sister, mother, father. So like to make this, to put it in a nutshell, right, there's a way that categorization, um, especially in terms of the aligned and affiliative is, um, right, uh, is th that representation is placed upon the socius and that corresponds to people, right? There's, there's namings of them and there's categorizings of them. And that categorization, those that, that representation is effectively where the prohibition is, is coming into being, right? Is it's circulating at this this marking of bodies. So if your body is marked as a mother, there is a prohibition um, in terms of how a mother can circulate, of how a mother fits into the affiliative and the alliant. Yeah, because mother, sister, and father have only uh, a meaning in this specific structure, in the specific uh, change of representation. Uh, without these uh, strict systems or change uh, of signifiers, uh, words like incest or 
taboos like these wouldn't have any meaning. They don't have uh, an essence of meaning to them, but only in relation uh, in the structure to other signifiers or markings. Yeah, the body is territorialized. And, and that's I see the that's where I see the failed jumping is there you're jumping from the body to a name you're jumping from a body to a category and that's the failed jump right from a, from a thing jumping to, from a from, sign to the referent seems to fail from a from a thing to its signifier yes uh, well the to sign, its sign yes. to its sign to its sign and uh, to mention it is Saucer, I believe. Alyosha was giving you shit about pronunciation and uh, do not feel bad. Uh, I always, uh, I just want to give Alyosha a little bit of shit <laughs> because I didn't hear uh, Foucault pronounced aloud until I was 23. So until then, I was calling him Foucault. That's just <laughs> the way it worked. And I did that for years and thought I was quite clever. Uh, so it's just the way it goes. Closer. It's uh, so so, yeah. yeah, that's the French way of saying it. So. Um, exactly. <laughs> you have to say it like you're uh you you ate an oyster and it disagreed with you. So his first name it ends with the D because in English you would say Ferdinand, but it's in French you don't say the D, so it's Ferdinand. What a language! Uh, this this thing about jumping. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, Lacan. Um, define uh you know defining desire in terms of uh montage and so in montage you have the jumping of from one image to another within the film and so i i think that the, i think that one of the things they might have in mind is that kind of jump from image to image actually that's probably what they are talking about because that's i mean they're contemporarily calling out some things from lacan throughout this chapter and that would make sense that they'd continue i mean it's still it's, it's still accurate to what everyone's saying here so it's like it doesn't it, it's just an it's an interesting sort of poetic twist on what they're talking about i like it so so this gets refined in the cinema series uh because in there he talks about the movement image and the time image and uh talks about Persian semiotics uh, with respect to the movement image. So um, you know, so anyway, that's what this reminds me. Alright, I'm going to uh, push ahead. Uh, this is a long paragraph, so please, if you have stuff to say, make notes. Uh, we will at some point try to uh, stop. <clears throat> All this finds itself overwhelmed in a new destiny with the despotic machine and imperial representation. In the first place, graphism aligns itself on the voice, falls back on the voice, and becomes writing, a term falls back on. At the same time, it induces the voice no longer as the voice of alliance, but as, its, as that of the new alliance, a fictitious voice from beyond that expresses itself in the flow of writing as direct affiliation. These two fundamental despotic categories are also the movement of graphism that, at one and the same time, subordinates itself to the voice in order to subordinate the voice and supplant it. 
Then there occurs a crushing of the magic triangle. The voice no longer sings, but dictates, decrees. The graphy no longer dances, it ceases to animate bodies, but is set into writing on tablets, stones, and books. The eye sets itself to reading. Writing does not entail, but implies a kind of blindness, loss of vision, and the ability to appraise. It is now the eye that suffers, although it also acquires other functions. Or rather, we are unable to say that the magic triangle is completely crushed. It subsists as a base and as a brick, insofar as the territorial machine continues to function in the framework of the new machine. The triangle has become the base for a pyramid, all of whose sides cause the vocal, the graphic, and the visual to converge toward an imminent unity of the despot. If we call the order of representation in a social system a plane of constancy, consistency, on the consistence, it is evident that this plane has changed, that it has become a plane of subordination and no longer one of connotation. And here, in this second place, is the essential. The flattening of the graphy onto the voice has made a transcendent object jump outside the chain, a mute voice on which the whole chain now seems to depend, and in relation to which it becomes linearized. The subordination of graphism to the voice induces a fictitious voice from on high, which inversely no longer expresses itself except through the writing signs that it emits. Revelation. This is perhaps the first assembling of formal operations that will lead to Oedipus, paralogism of extrapolation, a flattening out or a set of biunivocal relations that leads to the breakaway and elevation of a detached object and linearization of a chain that derives from this object feels like what we were just talking about expanded out. I think we did a good job in analyzing the last paragraph, everyone. What it feels like to me. Anyone? <laughs> yeah, sounds like it. It feels like we got a bunch right. That's what it, and then they just yeah. went through a handful of things. So Roger, go ahead. And then the following sentence, they say, but what does it mean? Yeah, no, we're about to, we're about to throw everything out of the window. I know, but I'm just excited because we actually very much were going through the concept of how these things work together and what the intention was. And it's nice uh, to, I'm just going to read Alyosha's comment. This revelation example is strange one, especially as they use Islam afterwards, whose revelatory text is couched entirely in first person statements or commands directly from God which I think is the point of what they're talking about here, actually, despotic, that those words become the words of God because they are written instead of handed down, where it can take on a secondary meaning and have a little bit more story to it, because it's, at that point it's polyvocity versus univocity of God giving us the words that's written. That's a, that's a tough one, and I think we'll have to piece through that maybe another time, because I'll... It, you know, it, it, the Quran was not written, obviously, originally. I'm just, I'm just trying to understand it in that framework because they, they're saying uh, it no longer expresses itself, this mute voice, except through the writing signs that it emits, i.e. revelation, which I can kind of, in, in principle, that kind of makes sense, that idea. But then I'm thinking about how explicit <laughs> Quranic revelation is about itself. And it even actually does actually talk about itself as a form of writing. So maybe it does but I'm just trying to understand it because afterwards they, they actually use it. Directly. They literally do that in this next paragraph. So I'm going to charge ahead uh, because they do, they're about to say, what does it 
It is perhaps at this juncture that the question, what does it mean, begins to be heard. <laughs> there. And that problems of exegesis... I never can pronounce this fucking word. Uh, anyone? Exegesis. Exegesis, thank you. Prevail over other problems of use and efficacy. The emperor, the god, what did he mean? In place of segments of the chain that are always detachable, attached partial object on which the whole chain depends, in place of a polyvocal graphism flush with the real, a biunivocalization forming the transcendent dimension that gives rise to a linearity, in place of non-signifying signs that compose the networks of a territorial chain, despotic signifier from which all the signs uniformly flow in a deterritorialized flow of writing. Men have even been seen drinking this flow. Andres Zemplini shows how, in certain regions of Senegal, Islam superimposes a plane of subordination on the old plane of connotation of animist values. The divine or prophetic word, written or recited, is the foundation of this universe. The transparency of the animist prayer yields to the opacity of the rigid Arab verse. Speech rigidities into formulas whose power is ensured by the truth of the revelation and not by a symbolic or incantatory efficacy. The Muslim holy man's learning refers to a hierarchy of names, verses, numbers, and corresponding beings, and if necessary, the verse will be placed in a bottle filled with pure water. The verse water will be drunk, one's body will be rubbed with it, and one's hands will be washed with it. Writing, the first deterritorialized flow, drinkable on this account, it flows from the despotic signifier. For what is the signifier in the first instance? What is it in relation to the non-signifying territorial signs which jumps outside their chains and, sup and imposes, superimposes, a plane of subordination on their plane of imminent connotation? The signifier is the sign that has become a sign of the sign, despotic sign having replaced territorial sign having crossed the threshold of deterritorialization. The signifier is merely the deterritorialized sign itself. Sign made letter. Desire no longer dares to desire, having become a desire of desire, a desire of the despot's desire. The mouth no longer speaks, it drinks the letter. I no longer sees, it reads. The body no longer allows itself to be engraved like the earth, but prostrates itself before the engravings of the despot, the region beyond the earth, the new full body. Please, Alyosha, please comment on... Because I think I do think um, their use of uh, the Quran here is fascinating, uh, as well as their sort of reference of some of the older and still modern rituals. But it's a the uh, all of this also ties back. It it would seem they I'm surprised they didn't mention how you can't uh, have the old graphs of uh, Muhammad drawn. And actually, there's a lot of things you're not allowed to draw inside of uh, Muslim religion because they don't want. Them. I'm not sure if there's a specific... Sorry, I just have the doorbell here. Uh, I'm not sure if I can... I'm still trying to piece through it in my head. I mean, I think I'm, I'm always suspicious of like these kinds of phrases, the opacity of the rigid verse, like these kinds of things. Um, I get what they're trying to say. I, I almost wonder sometimes if they like are writing like this as kind of retroactively applying Christian tropes to other religious experiences, which are just different. I, don't, I think I might need to think about that and evolve that thought because I would actually look at like the period of revelation, the early period of Muhammad's revelation as much more along the lines of the kind of polyvocal disruptive, you know, 
uh, schizo speech that they tend to talk about. So, but I mean, you know, there's no denying in terms of like, you know, the way it's established as a major religion over the world, all that good stuff. I'm just, I'm reading this section and because it's a, it's a point of reference, I think I'm a bit closer to it's, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to piece through it because I don't know if I, 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 I get the idea of despotic signifier, but it, uh, I, well, so so let's easy. let's. Well, I think so, I I think they are trying to take that surface level easiness because one of the things that is true is that these things are words from him himself. Like this, uh, uh, take the Christian Bible, take really any other writings. They're all explicitly not the word of God. Uh, even though they're talked about as being the word of God, they are the word of God is spoken to someone else and then reinterpreted. They, they actually go through that a lot. Whereas the Quran is very much from first person. Right. And I think that that, spe- that spe- specificity is the example, the reason they're using it. And I don't know if there's much more depth. I'm going to assume there's actually not a lot more depth uh, to what they're saying. And they're talking about it purely as... Uh, Muhammad came in, these are the words, and they're such the words that, uh, as they use the example, the verse uh, placed inside of water and water drank, so that way the verse can, you know, help the person. And they, these these old-timey rituals, which I know there's all kinds of stories, but more that as being a fable as an interesting way of having these words themselves be literal words of God and how much they've taken over the thing they were signifying. I'm not smart enough for this section yet. <laughs> I'll have some. So I'll, yeah, I'll give you like, I'll give you like a real world example. I used to live, uh, I used to have a roommate when I was working into another town and he was from Senegal. And we had those talks at length about religion and the tripartition of religion in Senegal, you know, and they refer to animism. And then he was telling me that there was the Christian uh, religion, but also there was the uh, the Muslim religion and everything was intertwined, like culturally. So like they would believe in God, but also they would believe that the rock, you know, would be like an entity that can interact in their life. So if we take it like this. And we put it into ontological terms. For example, animism is a form of ontology. And then the written word of the uh, of the Muslim is from another ontology, which is more transcendental than something that is emanant. So what they're referring to here is how there's a coupling, uh, how there's like a multiplicity within those uh, the, the encounter of those ontology that produces a new arrangement of... Uh, of signifier, of signs, but also of, uh, of senses. So, and what they're saying is that um, the, written, the written word with formulas and everything into that kind of specific ontology that like um, uh, have at a score a form of transcendence will actually put itself in the background of any animus practices. So basically they're going to be there at, both at the same time, but the um, the colonized um, ontology will be subordinated to the first. I don't know if you follow all of this. That's no, it's really helpful. I think. I mean, I think there's a truth in that in terms of if you look at also how did any major sort of like imperial religious system adapt itself to so many different contexts, which Christianity. But, also but, did. 
obviously with the example but, of Virgin. But what I would say I would say something even worse. It doesn't adapt the concept. It, it it doesn't adapt itself to the context, but it it adapts the context to itself. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, well, well that's I was going to say the famous example of the Virgin of Guadalupe um and in Mexico and the, you know the fusion like you say it's not even just the fusion of an existing situation but sort of creating a new situation where these new forms of ancient gods can be reinterpreted in light of this master god which is now the christian god and stuff like that 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 stuff makes sense to me mm-hmm. and it's it's interesting they use senegal as the example and that may be what also helps uh Alyosha, if you want to do readings on how senegal switched from being a deeply animistic culture to uh, income the french and it's basically colonized and so there's kind of like four sects there's the christians who are still animate they still have animism as kind of part they've they've brought it in uh, the same with the muslim side then there's the those who are just still uh, very much sort of the traditional and then the secular which is uh because the government's deeply secular and it's actually something all the groups agree on is that they need to be secular so it's a really interesting it's a really interesting uh country uh i mean awful history but really interesting country in terms of how the despotic uh, and, and imperial takes over. Probably the reason they picked that. Also, Francophone, so <laughs> might be close. It, it is, it is, it is. Uh, the French are the ones who came in and took it over. They're the imperial best time around. No offense, Roger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not French. Yeah, yeah. We are rejects from friends. Oh, yeah. Um, I guess I'll continue. Okay, you do. Uh, Brooks, if you want. Oh, go for it. Uh, but Roger had a thing real quick. Yeah, go for it. Well, no, me, no. No, someone did. Uh, oh, it was that Jack. was me. Yes, because Alibaba has come today. No, I, in all seriousness... Um, I do think it's worth expanding too, though. Roger's absolutely right. There is an ontological point here in terms of like how the representation um, is fleshing out over the socius and, and is fleshing out to, to effectively create a kind of reality, right? Um, although I got to be careful there because that's a little bit more complicated than socius and, and um, fleshing out. In that sense, when they ask the question, what does it mean? Right, and they use the word exegesis here, right, which is like like scriptural interpretation or like critical interpretation. But, right, they're talking about understanding things and interpreting them, right, which I think is really important in terms of the signification, but also with the eye um, and, and how things are being, uh, how things are going from being marked to dealing with this abstraction, right? Because, um they're using the example of um, somebody who's writing on Islam, but it's not simply Islam they're talking about here, right? It, it's this way that, um, without going too deeply into it, it's this way that what is written, right, um, ties back to the despot. And in that sense, um, the despot becomes the full body of things, right? So we're moving from connotation to um into the system. And I think just what I want to point out here is that 
with connotation, we're talking about things connoting um, the earthly, right? Um, at least in the primitive society, there's at least the, the earth is socius there. Whereas now we're tying things back to the despotic, or not the despotic, to the despot themselves, which is how writing serves here. This example of um, Islam, I think, is meant to demonstrate how how writing both represents, um, I shouldn't say represents, how writing addresses bodies and that, and how we we look to things like laws um, at this level of, of um, their sort of power relation within the representation. Shall I do the next paragraph? Please dive in. Okay. No water will ever cleanse the signifier of its imperial origin, the signifying master or the master signifier. In vain will the signifier be immersed in the imminent system of language, la langue, or be used to clear away problems of meaning and signification, or be resolved into the coexistence of phonematic elements, where the signified is no more than the summary of the respective differential values of these elements in the relationships among themselves. In vain will the comparison of language, see, langage, I'm not saying how you say that, to exchange and money be pushed to its furthest point, subjecting language to the paradigms of an active capitalism. One will never prevent the signifier from reintroducing its transcendence, from bearing witness for a vanished despot who still functions in modern imperialism. Even when it speaks Swiss or American, linguistics manipulates the shadow of Oriental despotism. <laughs> Ferdinand de Saussure does not merely emphasize the following, that the arbitrariness of language establishes its sovereignty as a servitude or a generalized slavery visited upon the masses, quote-unquote masses. It has also been shown that two dimensions exist side by side in Saussure. One horizontal, where the signified is reduced to the value of coexisting minimal terms into which the signifier decomposes, but the other vertical, where the signifier is elevated to the concept corresponding to the acoustic image, that is, to the voice, taken in its maximum extension, which recomposes the signifier value as the opposite of the coexisting terms, but also the concept as the opposite of the acoustic image. In short, the signifier appears twice, once in the chain of elements in relation to which the signified is always a signifier for another signifier, and a second time in the detached, detached object on which the whole of the chain depends. And that spreads, and that spreads over the chain, uh, sorry, <laughs> the effects of signification. There is no phonological or even phonetic code operating on the signifier in the first sense without an overcoding affected by the signifier itself in the second sense. All right, then. Okay. <laughs> I'm joking in the chat. I was saying I couldn't understand less a body of text being read out loud unless it was Finnegan's Wake. <laughs> it's it's up there. Uh, this this is this is significant. And there's just a lot that uh, we could dive into and go into. And I'm actually going to uh, uh, suggest at this point we finish analyzing this paragraph and then. Uh, we do what we can to continue tomorrow rather than do a review session. So we do what we can do about just reading through. We'll do another one of these tomorrow. Um, but for this, this paragraph specifically, uh, where do we want to start?
because there's uh, layers to this that are worth, I don't know, tearing apart and figuring out. Um, I'd, I'd like to recommend that we read the next paragraph because it seems to me like they're making their their main point in the next paragraph. Okay, I'm down with that. Uh, and in the French version, it's no separate paragraph. It's one continuous block of text. It, it is a continuous block of text in one of my texts as well. So it's a, oh, a second sense is where it ends in this one. But I'm going to continue reading on, and uh, we'll see what we can do. There is no linguistic field without biunivocal relations. That's where we left off, correct? Yes. Whether between ideographic and phonetic values, or between articulations of different levels, monemes and phonemes, that finally ensure the independence and the linearity of the deterritorialized signs. But such a field remains defined by a transcendence, even when one considers this transcendence as an absinthe, absence or an empty locus, performing the necessary foldings, levelings, and subordinations. A transcendence, whence issues throughout the system the articulate material flux in which this transcendence operates. One second, I just had a stroke. Okay. I'm going to reread that sentence. But such a field remains defined by a transcendence, even when one considers this transcendence as an absence or an empty locus, performing the necessary foldings, levelings, and subordinations. A transcendence once issues throughout the system, the inarticulate material flux in which this transcendence operates, opposes, selects, and combines. The signifier. It is curious, therefore, that one can show so well the servitude of the masses with respect to the minimal elements of the sign within the eminence of language, without showing how the domination is exercised through and in the transcendence of the signifier. There, however, as elsewhere, an irreducible exteriority of conquest asserts itself. For if language itself does not presuppose conquest, the leveling operations that constitute written language, indeed, presuppose two inscriptions do not speak the same language. Two languages, one of masters and the other of slaves. This person describes such a situation. For the Sumerians, a given sign is water. Sumerians read this sign A, which signifies water in Sumerian. Akkadian comes along and asks his Sumerian master, what is this sign? Sumerian replies, that's A. The Akkadian takes the sign for A, and on this point there is no longer any relationship between the sign and water, which in Akkadian is called Mu. I believe that the presence of the Akkadians determined the phonetization of the writing system and that the contact of two peoples is almost necessary before the spark of new writing can spring forth. Whew. Yeah, I just I just like to note that you know we in the Lacan reading group we were just uh, reading a section and I was surprised to see that Lacan uses this term uh, biunivocal, so it's not something that was made up by by Deleuze. No, it's a uh, generally a lot of people in the tradition of psychoanalysis speak to it because it's a question of 
Uh, the voices which with which we talk with, there's the voice that you're literally hearing right now, and then there's my actual voice that's sort of internal monologue, and that they they do a lot of discussions around that, and Lacan references those kinds of things pretty commonly when it comes to how signifier sort of plays around. The really, I, I this whole section, this whole paragraph is a nightmare. To me. It's a, have you ever been driving like uh, on a road trip so long that eventually you stop realizing that you're moving and it feels like the white line is just coming at you? <laughs> that's, that's how reading this felt. I just kind of just ended up on autopilot. And I think that uh, it, it, this part in this paragraph, the second paragraph that you read is kind of like the key point that they're trying to get across, which is the about transcendence. So the the so basically it says, but but such a field remains defined by a transcendence even when one considers this transcendence as the absence or the empty locus, performing the necessary foldings, levelings, and subordinations. A transcendence with whence issues throughout the system an inarticulate um, material flux, in which this transcendence operates, opposes, selects, and combines. The signifier. So basically, uh, you know, I mean, if it, you know, if we ever get around to reading difference and repetition, you know, the in difference and repetition, they're talking about a transcendent which is imminent, which is the limit of the imminent realm which which it's in. And one of the things that Deleuze says is that if you take those uh, transcendences within the imminent realm, realm to their limit it becomes something different than you would have expected. And I think that that's, that's kind of the function they're talking about here is this, uh, this, this imminent, imminent transcendent which differentiates itself when pushed to its, push it, push to its limit. Mm -hmm. So, and then we can say it in like really dumb terms. Reality is unorganized. And then the transcendent discourse will organize it in one way. It's only when it is encountering another form of understanding that, you know, does not relate to the transcendent form that could give rise to a new combination. Only thing, you know, it's like two different, two different ways of understanding the world coming together will spark a third manner of understanding. I have to wonder also if there's a, uh, and I'm I'm sure I'm jumping a million miles ahead, but a lot of uh, what they're talking about with the Akkadians and Sumerians, I have to wonder if there's a thing that happens with the fact that English is basically what is commonly accepted as the way we do business and how capital functions now, how much that affects and it impacts. Yes. On every, so, every. so being from another culture, being French, for example, we have a. See, so you're French. See, so you're French. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Gotcha. I gotcha. <laughs> so our language is a little bit more poetic, and uh, you know, there's there's a lot of like uh, double, triple senses to what we say, but when we come to English, and that's something that I've done with a lot of French philosophy, it's really easier to understand in English because there's a pragmatic sense to English that we don't really have in French. So the, the transcendent logic of English is a pragmatic economic, you know, there's an economy of words, 
and there's an economy of sense, which you don't have in some other languages. You know, I'm just taking French as one example, but um, this is how the, the the colonization, you know, of um, of a culture of a country by English forces, you know, uh, would transform even through language uh, people into producers and uh, agents of capitalism. Even if they were colonized and being exploited, they were still becoming more and more agents of capitalism mm -hmm. because they would understand the world through the English logic that was underlying uh, the language. Yeah, and it's it's it's. I, I want to uh, emphasize something that uh, Roger said, which is um, you know Gregory Bateson wrote this amazing book called Mind and Nature, and basically. What he says in there is that, um, you know, it's it's kind of a question that he that he raises is that why is it that when you study two things completely independent of each other, two different subjects, that you get a better quality of information than if you just studied each one separately alone? And so I think that that's the 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 thing about the two languages is kind of like talking about that that this phenomena that when when two languages interact you get something that goes beyond uh what uh you know what any one of those languages uh might have on its own and it's it's very interesting that uh assyrian you know uh sumerian and akkadian was like that and uh more recent research suggests that the akkadian was there from the beginning and it it wasn't that the Akkadians took over Sumeria, but that the Akkadians were there from the beginning, and that the Sumerian uh, written language was more a, uh, a a language of scholarly classes for that was based on you know accounting from the beginning, and then and then you know accounting for things was the the basis of Sumerian writing in cuneiform, and then. And then, uh, then other functions are, were added on once they realized what what writing could do. But um, so anyway, there's this really interesting relationship between the Sumerian writing and 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 by way by the way, Sumerian is a unique language that's not doesn't seem to be related to any other language uh, group. And so that's always a big question of uh, the anomaly of the Sumerian language. But Akkadian is a is a Semitic language. And I think with that, I'm going to put a pin in this. We are going to continue tomorrow. I will see you guys back here. We will do another live stream. This has been fun. Uh, thank you all for your contributions. And I hope I hope most of you can join us because um, this is a really wonderful text. And we're starting to get somewhere. Or we're starting to talk about some very important and concrete things, which is nice. Speaking of language. Thank all of you guys. And... Uh, Continue another time. Thank you for that.